Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that he had been planning this for a long time. He was waiting for this time, this day, this place to ask the most important question the world has ever heard. He was setting it all up. You got to understand in the ancient world, there, there couldn't have been a better place and, and a better time. It's where the Greek god Pan was thought to originate there in Caesarea Philippi. Pan's that, that half man, half goat that plays the little flute type thing with the nymph scurrying all around him. And there from a cave underneath the mountain at Caesarea Philippi, a stream pours out. And that stream becomes the Jordan River. Every good Jewish man, every, every Jewish woman would immediately go back to the history of their, their people, how their history is tied to that river. When they crossed that river into the promised land, into Israel, the land that, that, that Jehovah, that Yahweh had given to them, so much that God has done through that small waterway starts here. And standing there in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus turns to the twelve, and he simply asks the question, who do these people say that I am? Of all these people, of all the religions, of all the philosophy and Greek mythology of, of man, who do they think that I am? And the disciples had some answers. After all, they've been dealing with people. After all, they fed the 5,000 out of one lunchbox. They've been hanging out with all the people, the crowd coming around, the crowd asking them questions. You know, so what did Jesus do here? Was, was the guy really blind? You know, is the story really true? What have you seen him do? Who do you think he is? And so they answered him, and they said, well, some people say that you rank up there with the prophets. Some think you're a miracle worker. You're like one of the, the greats, one of the giants. And I don't think he really was asking that. I think what he really wanted, he was using it as a, as a way to really get at what he wanted to get to. He's, he, he wanted to know halfway through the Gospels, halfway through the book of Mark, do you have any clue who you're following? And so he asked the disciples, but what about you? Who do you think that I am? Like I said, I think it's the greatest question that could ever be asked. And I wonder how quiet the group got. I, I wonder if there was a pause. I wonder if they, some of them wanted to holler out the answer, but they weren't sure if they were going to be right, or maybe they, they'd be wrong. And, and, and Peter's going to speak up. Why? Because Peter always speaks up. I don't know if everyone in the group uh, got nervous, and finally eight or nine or ten of them were staring at Peter, and he says, okay, he's, got, he's, got, he's a self-appointed spokesman. He's got to speak up. And so he says, I think you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Christ. One's a Hebrew word, the other's a Greek word. They both mean the same thing. The anointed one, the one that God is, is sending. You're the son of God that we've 
been waiting for. And I wonder if Jesus just kind of let that pause and, and let that hang there for a moment. And then he said, Peter, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, he wasn't talking about Peter the man. The Lord doesn't build his church on any man or woman. He's saying on this statement that I am the Christ, that thing that you just said, that thing that the Father revealed to you, that's what my church is going to be based upon. And then he had something to say to them that just blew their minds. So, so boys, listen up. We're going to head to Jerusalem. I'm going to hand myself over to our enemies. They're going to mock me. They're going to whip me. They're going to beat me. They're going to flog me. They're going to spit on me. Then they're going to kill me. And three days later, Easter's going to happen. It's the first time they've heard that from him. So once again, Peter takes it upon himself, and in front of the group, he, he says, Jesus, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's the Walt East paraphrase of what Peter said. The Bible says that Peter rebuked Jesus. Peter rebuked the Lord. He said, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, our people have been waiting and waiting and waiting for thousands of years. For the last 400 years, we've been reading all this apocalyptic literature. It's not in the Bible, but it's the Jewish writings saying that one day, one day there's going to be a superhero. There's going to be a Messiah who comes, and he's going to turn the world upside down, and we're going to have freedom, and we Jews are going to have power. We've been waiting for it. We've been in captivity with the, the Babylonians, with the Assyrians, with the Medes, with the Persians, with the Greeks, and now the Romans. And Peter tells Jesus, Jesus, this is a dumb idea. A dying God, a dying Messiah is no use to us. He's no good to us. And then it's Jesus' turn to rebuke Peter, calling him Satan, calling him an adversary. Say, get behind me. You don't have the things of the Father in mind here. And in that moment, in that place, at the center of so much religion in the ancient world, Jesus wants them to know who he is, and he wants them to know what his plan is. And I look at Peter, and I say, man, dude, how can you talk Jesus out of the cross? The defining moment of, of all history, and, and you're saying, you know, that's not good. That's not a good plan. And then I realize that sometimes... I do that, sometimes on a daily basis. I call it prayer. Talking to God, uh, trying to talk God out of, out of where my life's going, telling him that I've got a much better plan and it doesn't involve suffering. You know, any of you pray for more suffering in your life this week? Anybody? Okay, that's what I thought. No, in fact, my life, as soon as it gets into trials or, or trouble or, or something close to suffering, that's when I pull God aside and say, hey, I don't know if you know this, but this is a dumb idea. I'm not supposed to suffer. I'm on your side. They're walking with Jesus. They don't know what it means yet, but, but they know that he's the son of God, and they know that they're walking with God, and that if you're walking with God, it, surely you shouldn't suffer. After all, Sunday school taught us that. And it's amazing that 30 years later, Peter stops to write the book that we've been studying, and he challenges us to embrace suffering, to embrace persecution. The guy that tried to talk Jesus out of suffering somehow has come full circle 
Somehow it's come all the way around to see what life is about, what earth is about, and what heaven is about. And now he writes to the church and he says, let me tell you how to embrace suffering. I'm no longer trying to talk God out of it. And to see the insight from that is where we're going to go today. If you're just joining us, we're, we're in the book of 1 Peter, and we've been there for 15 weeks now. Yes, I'm keeping count. We've got three more after this to go. We're taking it pretty slow. We're, we're coming down to the last chapter here shortly. And, and if you've missed the first 14, they're, they're available on our Facebook page, they're available on my podcast, uh, or on our website, all for free. And this may sound a little familiar if you've been with us. Suffering. Why does that sound familiar? Because it's the fourth time in 15 weeks that we've talked about it. Why? Because the scripture talks about it. Because God impressed Peter to talk about it. We've said suffering's normal. We've said that we're going to suffer. So you choose what you suffer for. You can suffer for good or you can suffer for evil. And just because you're suffering in life doesn't mean that it's because you're a Christian. Because you can suffer for Jesus or you can suffer because you're a jerk. And we hit that one week. We said, don't be a jerk. Suffer for Jesus. And then I ended with the good news. I said, hey, the good news is that if you're a follower of Jesus, then whatever you're going through, however bad it is, this is as close to hell as it's ever going to get. Haven't we heard this before, Walt? Yeah. And maybe that's the point. Have you ever noticed how, as a parent, how, how, how the really important things in life, how many times you had to tell your kid those things? The most important things in life need reinforced over and over and over again. And I look at this and I realize that God has some pretty important, incredible things for you and for me, and maybe we need to hear them more than once or twice. Why? Because life can be really hard. And I have to constantly be reminded when life is hard, what I am and what I'm supposed to do. And the other thing I realized is we never really talked about sources of suffering. We've talked about suffering, and remember he's writing a book here. Peter's writing this letter to a church, to, to, to Christians who are suffering, who are being persecuted in the first century. And they're not like, well, the, the people at work are, are treating me badly because they know I go to church. They're making fun of me, calling me Jesus boy. No, 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 no. The people at work are, are literally setting them on fire. Nero's using Christians to, to illuminate his gardens at night in Rome. It's real persecution, like what's happening in so many parts of our world today. We don't taste that here in America. And so when we talk about suffering for Jesus, we're like, oh yeah, life's hard. But a lot of our suffering isn't because of Jesus. And so today, what I want to do is I want to break it down. I want to look at different sources of suffering. And what do we do? What does the Bible say we do with it? He begins in 1 Peter 4, verse 12. And he says this. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised. And I encourage you, take your life notes. That's that half sheet of paper I give you to take notes on every week. Take your life notes and circle those words there. Do not be surprised. Circle it, highlight it, underline it. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. I love that opening. You can tell the compassion, almost the, the empathy as Peter writes. He says, hey, friends. He says, hey, look, church, I really care about you guys. 
But here's what I gotta let you know. Why are you so surprised that your life is hard as if you're the only one in the world who has a tough life? Why are you surprised at the, at the struggle that you're, that you're going through? We've been set up from the very beginning, you know. Why? Because we follow a suffering Messiah. Jesus did not come to set up a palace and a, and a kingdom and a, and a great life. He, he came to suffer and to die. And we are called to follow one who suffers. And Jesus made it pretty clear with the crowd. He said, anyone can follow me. Pretty simple. All you got to do is every day deny yourself. Every day you wake up, say, Walt, it can't be your kingdom. It has to be God's kingdom. Well, dang it, I want it to be my kingdom. He goes, no, 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 no. You'll get a kingdom later. Right now, you do it my way. And he goes, and once you do that, all you have to do is pick up your cross and follow. And, and you're like, did he say cross? I thought he said recliner, okay? I thought he said chaise lounge out by the pool at Sky Valley or Caliente. No, he said cross. Every day you die to your own hopes, you die to your own dreams, you die to your own kingdom. You find out how to be a part of his. And guys, it's going to be carrying a cross. When you carry a cross, usually you're walking to a place that you don't want to go. When you carry a cross, you've, you've given up on you. And he says, that's the picture of Christianity. And Peter says, so why be surprised that life is such a struggle? Heaven comes later. But, and then he goes into verse 13. But rejoice, you can circle that word too, circle rejoice, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Peter says, let me tell you, if you are suffering, if, if, and if, if you're suffering simply because you're a Christian, then let me tell you, you should rejoice. You should be overjoyed. You should be blessed. You should be pleased. You should praise God in the midst of that suffering. Now, this was a guy, again, I remind you, 30 years earlier, pulled Jesus aside and said, we're not into suffering. This is the guy that pulled God aside and said, my plan doesn't involve suffering. Come on, let's change your plan. And now this is a guy, 30 years later, who writes to a church under persecution and says, guys, I get it now. Remember, I'm the guy that tried to talk Jesus out of the cross. This life is going to be brutally hard on many of us. And I love the way he threw that line in there in verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. How'd that get in there? He goes, guys, sometimes you suffer because you're a murderer, you're a thief, you're a criminal, and you're a gossip. What? And you're like, how did I make that list? That's not the group I should be associated with. Well, I think he kind of set up his church with that, he said, sometimes people make life hard on themselves because they're a busybody. They're sticking their nose into other people's business and relationships. And I don't know in this crowd that he was talking to if there are very many murderers or thieves or criminals in the church. He was trying to get to those gossips, though. 
and those of us that can't keep our nose out of other people's business. He was trying to get to us to, to realize that you're on that list and you're creating a world of hurt, a world of suffering for yourself and for others. I think even in the, in the early church, Peter realized that there, there's a group, when there's groups of people getting together, we start getting the spiritual pecking order. We start getting self-righteous. We, we love to talk about other people's dirt. Why? Because it takes our mind off of our own. And he goes, there's no place for that here. There's no place for that within the body of Christ. And I think he just set it up. Some people have a tough life. They're murderers, they're thieves, they're criminals, or they're gossiping. Get off the list. And by the way, every time we get to something like this, there's someone here who's saying, I know someone that's not here that needs to hear about that. Hmm. Then why didn't God bring him here? Maybe God brought you here to hear it. So here's the problem. We, we read this, and it, and, it, and it seems like you're saying, okay, if, if we're suffering because of God and following God, these are great things. How do we determine why we're suffering? And I want to give you this morning four sources of suffering. They're going to come out of, out of these things, and I think that all of our trials, all of our problems can come out of one of these four sources or these four categories. Number one, suffering is going to come down to because of God. Just write down God there in your, your first blank there. And there's really kind of two sub-reasons to this. The people that Peter is actually writing to, their suffering is from others because they're following God. And he's saying, you should rejoice, you should be overjoyed, be blessed, you should praise God because you're going to share in his glory, because you're sharing in his suffering. And if you're going through something difficult simply because you're known as a Christian, because of who your father is, and that's making life tough, then that's a good thing. May I remind you, Jesus came to suffer, and you're sharing in his suffering, and you're going to share in his eternity as well. You're going to share in his glory, Peter says. If you're walking with God in such a way that other people can see it, he says you're in the family. This is going to be great. Right now it can be tough. But I don't know how much of our suffering comes from that. Again, it's not suffering because you claim to be a Christian. It's not suffering because you're out there speaking truth. Several weeks ago, we hit that. We, we always said that it has to be done with love and respect towards others, and that's the difference. We can be holding on to the truth of God, and, and we can do it according to Jesus, and we can be a real jerk about it, can't we? Are you loving them as you share it? And in the midst of that, if there's persecution and suffering, he says, consider yourself blessed. A lot of times we take the Bible and the truth and we deal with it without respect, without love for others, and we think that, that we have a license because we have the truth to go and beat people up with it. Look at the first century rabbi named Jesus and what he did. Look at how he treated people. Don't be like the Pharisees, be like Jesus. And yet the reality is if you're suffering, if it's difficult simply because you're a follower of Christ, he says, let me tell you what you're sharing in. It's going to be temporary. Keep your mind, keep your goal on what is, keep your sights on what is eternal. The second reason for suffering due to God is this. It's simply because he's dad. He's Abba. He's father. And a lot of our suffering comes from God because he's dad. Listen to this verse. Write down, I didn't write in your notes, but put, write down Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. It says, you have forgotten the encouraging words that God speaks to you as his children. And then he's going to go on, he's going to quote from Proverbs chapter 3. He's going to say, God's going to deal with you like a great dad does with his kids. 
He says, my child, pay attention when the Lord disciplines you. Don't give up when he corrects you. The Lord disciplines everyone he loves. He severely disciplines everyone he accepts as his child. If you're a child of God, don't be surprised when the Lord disciplines you. It's not rocket science, folks. There are some times that, that I'm going through difficult places in life and struggling with things, and I just wonder, God, is, is this your hand? Are you trying to build me up? Are you, are you trying to equip me? Are you trying to encourage me? Are you trying to make me a better guy, a better husband, a better dad, a better pastor, a better friend? I hope so. I just don't like the drills I have to go through sometimes to get there. It says, do you remember? Have you forgotten the encouragement? This, this God is not far off and distant, but he loves you as a father, and therefore he will walk with you through some rebuke and some discipline to purify you and to make you better. So the first source suffering simply comes from God. Sometimes it's because we're walking with God like, like Daniel in the, in the Old Testament. Or sometimes like Job. You look at Job. Uh, he, he was allowed to suffer. God allowed Satan to tweak Job's life. And, and he goes, I trust Job. Job's my man. Watch how Job sticks through all this stuff. No matter what you throw at him, he's going to stay true to me. The second source of suffering is simply this. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. We saw that last week when we looked at Ephesians chapter 6. I encourage you to go back and look at that again this week. It's why I titled this message, Don't Blame Heaven. You see, I think Satan's got a real racket. Satan loves messing up our life, and then we turn around and we shake our fists at God, and he's like genius. This is the best plan ever. Not only am I messing up God's kids' lives, but now they're blaming their dad. And he's really good at what he, what he does. You see, the moment that you become a Christ follower, you've made a huge enemy. There's a good and there's an evil. There is God and there is Satan. And Satan hates God, but Satan can't do anything directly to God. And if you hate someone but you can't touch them, what do you do? You go after that thing that they love most. And in this case, he goes after God's children. He goes after God's kids. And the moment you or I decide to follow this incredible God, we put this big target on our backs. And because Satan might not be able to get to God, he comes to the heart of God. He comes to us. And I love the way the Bible puts it out so clearly that life is going to be a struggle. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, this world right now is, is run by the evil one. Heaven will be our home, but until then we have this target on our back and we're going to be under attack. So don't be surprised. Page three of the Bible talks about this broken world. Page one is that there's a creator who created all things. Page two is the pinnacle of his creation is, is man and woman that he created. The sexes and marriage, and this is the pinnacle of God's creation. Page three, man and woman decided that they wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil, determining what was good and evil. And so they disobeyed the one thing God told them not to do. And as a result, sin came into the world. The world became broken. We live in a broken world because of that. Sin, sickness, disease. All of us live in a reality that you can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray all you want. But all too often, cancer usually kills. Tumors take lives. Bodies fail and give out. Accidents happen. And we have to stand by the graveside of those that we love. 
And we turn and, and, and sometimes we shake our fists at God in a lot of these moments. And let me tell you, it's all the results of page three. And we don't talk about it a lot either, but death, death was a gift to us. You see, at the end of page three, chapter three in Genesis, men and women weren't meant to die. We were meant to live here on this earth in fellowship with, in relationship with God. And in chapter 3, God saw that sin came into the world, and he saw what it did to us, and he didn't want us to live in that state forever and ever and ever in eternity. And so he allowed death to come in. And then he made a way so that we don't have to live in this junk, so that we could have eternity with him in a redeemed world. That's why death is so hard on us. We were never made for it. We were never hardwired for it. We were never made to deal with it and to go through with it. It's foreign to us. And yet now it's a daily part of our existence. And a lot of our struggle simply comes from living in a broken world where disease kills, where accidents happen, and where heartache is on a daily basis. And God says, look, I'm telling you, this isn't your home. Don't hold on to the things of this life so tightly because I have a real home for you coming. I think thirdly, suffering is self-inflicted. Suffering is self-inflicted. And you could write down the consequences of sins. The last point we dealt with the, 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 the sin problem from Genesis chapter 3, the big sin problem, but I don't, I'm talking about individual sins. And you can put next to that ours or others. Some of us have been caught up in the backwash of other people's sins. Many of us are walking around with the scars, the heartbreak, the hurt, the anger, the terror of what someone else has done to us or someone has allowed to happen to us. There's evil in the world, and it, and it has hit us, and it's that age-old philosophical question, why? Why did God even allow it? Well, it's because without the choice to do evil, there's no real choice to do love. There's no real choice to do good. And love has to be a choice. If there's no choice to love, there, there has to be a choice not to love. And, and to God to allow love for us to experience love with each other and, and love for him, there had to be a choice to love. And if there's a choice to evil, some people may choose that choice. So God said, okay, either everybody will be robotic with no love, no, no choice uh, to do whatever they want to do, or I have to allow that choice, which means that there will be incredible acts of love, but there'll also be incredible acts of violence and hatred. But we have a way of, of messing up our life, and we still blame God. And one of the best examples of that is this guy named David. You know, I grew up in Sunday school being told, be like David. He's a man after God's own heart. He killed giants. He was a great warrior, and, and he became king of God's people, and that was awesome. And it was awesome until I read the book. You know what I'm talking about? Read the book. First and second Samuel in the Bible. It's awesome until David realizes, man, I'm king. I can handle all this. I can make my own decisions. And in chapter 11 of, of second Samuel, his lust leads him astray. He's watching the neighbor lady bathe on her rooftop. He invites her up. He knows her husband's gone. Why? Because her husband is one of his best warriors. It's one of his buddies. It's one of his 30 fighting men that, that's talked about. It's one of his elite soldiers. And so he commits adultery with the neighbor wife. And now you got to remember, David's already taken multiple wives. He didn't have to have this one, but that's just the problem of wanting to be king. Making your own choices. We think it's harmless. It's not going to hurt anybody until word comes back that the neighbor wife's pregnant. 
And now he doesn't know what to do. So what does he do? He takes the same hand, the same pen, probably at the same desk that he wrote 75 of the Psalms that are in your Bible, and he writes a note to his general. He says, I want you to put this guy in the front line. I want you to attack, and when the attack's the fiercest, I want you to pull the rest of the guys back and, and let this guy get killed. Make sure he dies. And that's King David. And you're like, whoa, that's a bad story. Well, that's not even the beginning of the story. That's chapter 11. Chapter 13, his oldest son decides, because dad had multiple wives, and now we got this blended family and all the heartache that it brings. The oldest, the oldest son has so much lust for one of his half-sisters that he rapes her. He rapes her in the palace when no one else is around. And the Bible says King David was furious. End of story. Dad's mad, but he can't do anything about it. You know, you, you, have, you really have a hard time sitting down on the bed with your 17-year-old son and talking to him about sexuality when you got the neighbor lady pregnant and you killed her husband. So dad's allowed to get, to get mad, but he can't pass on real masculinity. So Amnon, the next in line to be king, rapes his sister, and sister's older brother, Absalom, second in line to be king, he gets so upset because dad doesn't do anything, he goes out in the field, and he kills Amnon. Well, now Absalom has no respect for King David as his dad because he's allowed his sister to get raped and he didn't do anything about it. And so he has to be the man of the house. So he chases King David out of the palace. That's chapter 16. He chases dad out of the palace. He makes himself king. And, and some of his advisors say, hey, what you need to do is you need to take your father's concubines and wives, take them up and, and rape them on the roof of the, of the, of the palace. And he goes, sounds like a good idea. And so he does that. And David comes back and chases his second son out of the palace because the first son's dead. Second son gets caught by these troops, and he gets killed, and he's slaughtered that day. Well, now, number one son's gone, number two son's gone. Well, we got number three and number four sons, Adonijah and Solomon. They're looking, and they're like, hey, wow, we never thought we'd be able to be king. Door's wide open. And so now there's a race to see who can get to the throne. So Adonijah says, I'm going to marry one of dad's wives. That'll make me more of a man than my other brother, Solomon. And Solomon and his mom find out about it, and they have Adonijah killed. So if you ever wonder how Solomon became king in the Bible after David, it's a real simple story. All the other brothers screwed up and were killed. And God said, print it. He said, print it. And I want my people to read it. They never told me all that in Sunday school. They always always, oh, just be like King David. And I read this story, and I'm thinking, I don't think my wife wants me to be like King David. <laughs> I don't think my, my friends want me to, my neighbors want me to be like David. And God said, print it. Let me show you what happens when you decide to play king. Let me show you what happens when, when you decide, and you say, well, well why am I going to live my life by some archaic, ancient set of instructions? If this book is going to govern my, my sexuality and I'm going to be a prude and a loser in society, no thanks. Or if this book is going to govern how I, how I give, if it's going to govern my generosity and my finances and I'm never going to get ahead and get to where my kingdom needs to be. If this book is going to govern how I deal with my wife or, or how I, how I am, am a husband or a friend or deal with my other family members. We constantly look at this book and say, I will be king. And God says, print it. They need to understand the failings of man's ways. And a ton of our suffering in our lives just proves the Bible to be true because it's self-inflicted. 
We've done things our way. We've made a, a mess of our life, and we've made a mess of our families. We've made a mess of our past, and we're suffering for it. And, and don't be reading through First Peter and go, oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're living out the consequences of your sin. And there's a difference. There's a huge difference. I think lastly, you could put this. You could say it's a result of, of dumb decisions. Or if you really want, you could just write your name in there. Okay? Some of us have PhDs in dumb decisions, okay? I love uh, John Maxwell, leadership coach and, and pastor and teacher. John, I love the fact that John says he's learned more. He's got one teaching he calls failures, flops, and fumbles. John says he's learned more from his failures, his flops, and his fumbles than he has from his successes. There's things that you've invested in that you shouldn't have invested in. Things you did with your money that backfired. The house you bought that you shouldn't have bought. The house that you sold that you shouldn't have sold. When you rented, when you should have bought. When you bought, when you shouldn't have rented. The school you went to, the people you, you dated, uh, uh, bad decisions we, that we make sometimes. We look back and we say, oh my. And I look at so, so much stuff in my, my life and I say, well, it, it wasn't a sin. It wasn't, it wasn't sin, but what was it? Well, it was bad decisions. Sometimes we make bad decisions. You know, I've got a, a rear view mirror that shows me that I've made some real doozies. Samson in the Bible made a bad decision who he's going to partner with and, and it ended up bringing him down. And so I look at this and I go, okay, I, I think almost all the pain and, and the suffering in our life can run through one of these four corridors. The sources of it, God, a broken world, the consequences of sins, or my dumb decisions. Let's look briefly here at three truths about suffering. Three truths about suffering. Number one, suffering may not mean that God has let us down but that he is building us up. Suffering may not mean that God has let us down, but that he is building us up. It's why I read you that verse from, from Hebrews. Suffering may not mean that God's letting us down. Some of us may be crying out, well, God, I hate this. I, why, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? And, and God's like, no, no, I'm doing this. I'm the cause of your suffering. I want you to be better. I go back to playing football and hot August days in central Ohio, what we called two-a-days. It was two practices a day during the two weeks before school started. Now, it was only 85 degrees, I'll admit, only 85 degrees, but the average humidity in Columbus, Ohio in the month of August is 87%. So it feels hotter. And you've got a helmet on, and, and it's a sauna happening in there, and you're, you're going to do, you're doing bear crawls, and you're doing ups and downs, and you're running timed quarter miles and, and sprints and all that stuff. And I remember Coach Chuck Brockmeyer. He played back in the day when they didn't have face guards in the front of the helmets. He was old school. He was drafted by the New York Giants and ended up as, as, the, as the coach there at my high school for the Grove City Greyhounds. And Coach Brockmeyer would be out there screaming at us and saying, you ain't trying hard enough until you've puked. And I'm like, Coach, I already puked twice. And he said, good job, East, puke a third time. And I think, I hate everything about you, Coach. Oh, the stuff that we thought about Coach Brockmeyer. And you may be saying, well, whoa, why did Coach Brockmeyer hate the kids so much? He didn't hate kids. Coach Brockmeyer wanted two things. He didn't want to be embarrassed on Friday night as the head coach of the Grove City Greyhounds. And two, he wanted us to be the best that we could be so that we could experience victory. Now, unfortunately for Coach Brockmeyer, he was embarrassed most Friday nights, and we didn't have much victory. But the purposes of those drills and the heartache 
and the puking and the heat and the humidity was simply because he wanted the best out of us. And I can tell you, that has helped me not just on the football field, but the, going through that experience has helped me over and over and over again in so many venues of my life over the past 40 plus years. Sometimes when I go through a struggle, I have to remind myself, there's a God, there's a coach, there's a father who wants the best out of me. And he's saying, Walt, I love you deeply the way you are, but I don't want you to stay that way. I want you to be more, I want you to be better, I want you to be more effective, and I'm gonna put you through some drills. Oh no, hate that word, drills. You're gonna walk through this, and, and on the outside of this, you're gonna be stronger, and you're gonna have a, a greater impact for the kingdom. The second truth about suffering. Our surprise of suffering shows wrong expectations. Our surprise of suffering shows wrong expectations. I think some of us need to adjust our expectations about life. I remind you here what Peter starts off with this morning. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. A well-meaning Sunday school teacher told you long ago that God loves you and he died on the cross for you. You say a prayer to him and he's here and he's going to make your life all easy peasy for the rest of your life. The truth is God is not here to make our life easy. God is here because the world is full of suffering and he doesn't want us to walk through it alone. And he's got the end game in mind. And he will walk with us with this suffering. And once Peter figured this out, once Peter's plan for God in his life was no suffering back when it started, but 30 years later, he's got it figured out, and he writes this book. And for the fourth time, he's challenging us, grasp suffering, embrace suffering, understand that it's going to be there. Don't be surprised. We follow a Messiah who suffered. And I look around, and there's, there's too many preachers peddling. Oh, well, Jesus will make your life better. No, 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 no. Jesus made heaven possible. And until then, God will give us what we need to get through this life, through the suffering. The third truth about suffering, our suffering may be someone else's greatest blessing. You know, when I gave my life to Christ, the only reason I was left on this earth was to bring other people with me to heaven. Think about it. Otherwise, why be left on this earth? Why would a dad want his son to, to walk through a life like this or his daughter to walk through a life like this? Why doesn't God just take us home? Well, he says, I want you to populate heaven. You're part of my plan. There is no plan B. It's for you to be out there in the world and you to shine your light so that others may see you and glorify your Father in heaven. You're called to be light so that others see your God. And sometimes, sometimes that light shines brightest in suffering. It shines brightest in the darkness. If I were to hold a flashlight up and you saw the light, when would you see the light better? Today, during the daylight, or would you see it better if we were sitting here at, at 9 o'clock at night with the lights off? Now, the thing is, there's just as much light. Trust me, there's just as much light at both times, but you're going to notice it more in the darkness. That's when the light sticks out. You being a Christian, when, when life is easy, it's like, oh, okay, life's good for all of us. But when you walk through suffering and others see that, when you have faith and you're giving God the glory and you're making God look good, I promise you, people are going to sit up and notice. 
There's so many of us in church today simply because we saw this. We saw someone else going through something. We saw how someone else dealt with tragedy, how they dealt with with heartache, how they, they dealt with suffering. And because of that, that drew us to Jesus Christ. And we say that's not ordinary. That's extraordinary. That's not natural. That's supernatural. People are drawn to the light in darkness. Now, people, I I don't look around for the role to play the sufferer. You know, I don't necessarily go around looking for suffering. If God gets the team together, I suspect if God were here and he was getting us together and said, okay, we need a couple of you to suffer, man, I think all of us would be looking the other way. You know, like, we're not going to volunteer. But if the coach calls my number and says, Walt, through this, in this broken world, you have an opportunity to shine. It's the role I want to play for the kingdom because of that passage that Peter writes here simply ends in verse 19. It says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. One solution, regardless of the cause of suffering, bring glory to God in suffering not for suffering. That sounds a little, bit, a little bit churchy. Glory to God. What does that mean? Just, you, just write down, just make God look good. Just make God look good. Make our God look good in suffering. You don't have to thank him for the suffering. It's okay to pray and say, God, you know, I'd really like for this to end. I don't want a life of suffering. I don't ask for suffering, but I know life's broken and hard. My sin, my dumb choices the consequences of others, or maybe God just wants more for me. So in the midst of trials, I pray, God, may I commit my soul to you as my faithful creator, and I will continue to do good. Because everything in me says forget it. Everything in in me says blame God. Take the steering wheel back from your life. In the midst of it, I commit myself and and all that I am to the word of God and say, I'll follow you. I know you're good. I know this is temporary. Let the suffering come, but in the midst of this, I want to make you look good, Dad. In the midst of this, I will stay the course. And if I can be the light, then let me be the light. Amen. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.